Welcome back to the Igniting Change and Transforming Cultures podcast. I'm so excited to be here today because things are a little bit different. I've got a different co-host joining me. I've got Claire Quigley, who is one of my colleagues at New21. And Claire is going to be sharing with you her dulcet Irish tones as we discuss with Dr. Julian Waters Lynch, his latest article for New21 on whether your innovation narrative is growth affirming or growth denying. Claire works in the innovation space at New21. So I'm really looking forward to hearing her point of view on this article and topic. And of course, hearing from Jules himself. Thank you again for joining us today. Okay, well, welcome everyone. Today we're back on the podcast and we're, well, we're welcoming back Dr. Julian Waters Lynch, Jules or Dr. Jules, if you want to think about him like we said last week as a, as a DJ. And we've also got a new co-host joining us this week, Claire Quigley. Claire's one of the team at New21, so pretty excited to have Claire joining me on the hosting desk today. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, Sean. Hey, fun to be back. So the topic for conversation today is all around uh, innovation narratives. So Jules has written another article for the New 21 website and it's called, Is Your Innovation Narrative Growth Affirming or Growth Denying? And we're going to be discussing that today. And Jules, in particular, I wondered if we'd start with the story that you shared where I guess innovation narratives first sparked in your mind as something that's important. Mm. Well, the first thing I'd say is it, it always gives me a kind of gulp to write about innovation because I feel like it's it's so overused. Well, it's a word that triggers so many different responses, right? And it's, I mean, how many damn blogs are out there about, you know, business innovation and the importance of it. But the the background here is that it came out of a conversation with Hannah, another new 21, talking about what she'd observed with different clients in terms of how innovation is thought about inside business. And sometimes the organizations, especially large organizations, have a, a lot of initiatives about innovation. There's, you know, director of innovation over here or this innovation lab doing this thing or this innovation fund. But when you talk to ordinary folks working there, they seem confused at best about how their job relates to innovation or what's really going on or at worst kind of skeptical, <laughs> cynical about the whole enterprise, right? And we, we were discussing what to do about this, you know, do, do you launch another initiative or a project inside an organization? There's this new series of innovation workshops, so we're going to do this design thinking thing, or, or is the issue a larger one around what, what I'd call the narrative around how innovation sits and how it's linked to strategy? And it reminded me of this conversation that I had a few years ago with a carpenter. <laughs> it turned out to be a carpenter at a dinner party. So totally outside of a work context. But this kind of conversation I feel like I've had several times with different people perhaps you guys have had too but it was the awkward you know what do you do when you're a sort of knowledge worky consultant type right and more academic with somebody and he was saying what do you do I said look I study innovation and entrepreneurship and at this word innovation his eyes started rolling or this 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 demeanor of skepticism you know came over his face and this was in the midst of that short-lived Malcolm Turnbull experiment of the ideas broom that we, some of us might remember fondly. 
that lasted almost as long as the, the recent UK prime minister's <laughs> prime ministership, right? You know, it was one of these sort of flash in the pan moments. We're going to be, and if you, if you know about Australian history, there's been a few moments like this in the past. We're going to be the clever country or we're going to do this thing, you know, led by the top and it hasn't landed very well. And this one went down like a lead balloon, this, this sort of ideas boom. And so he, he was thinking about innovation in, in this larger story around the, the country and what it means for someone like him. And it was just very clear he was extremely skeptical of this and saw it as, you know, this was just basically an excuse for the rich to get richer or for technologists to come in and capture more of the resources, et cetera. And um, I remember thinking, well, how do I even respond to this? Like we're sitting here at this table you know, with electricity and heating and wine and food and all of this, it, all of the prosperity around us, you know, he's going to get in his car and drive home to his house and turn on the TV, probably all, all of these things around us are the product of innovators taking risks in the past, generally, right? There's someone, there's kind of a breakthrough invention, but there's also the, not just the inspiration, but the perspiration of bringing these things to market, which is difficult. And so the status quo that we see today, whether you're in a company or you're looking around society is, and, and I would argue the immense fortune that we have to live in, in these times is a product of innovation. And at the same time, he's not totally wrong that it is dislocating and disruptive and not everything that comes under the word innovation is a net good for society. So I was, I was sort of trapped with like, how do you, <laughs> how do you balance this argument in a dinner party context with someone that's very skeptical. And it, it reminded me of the challenge that leaders have when they're talking about innovation internally. Like you can't gloss over the, the possibility that this will change the nature of the business, right? And that will mean people's jobs will change. And some people, if, if you're successful in innovation, if it's very disruptive or transformative or radical, the long-term goal is to build a different kind of business, right? That's going to mean people have to do different things in their jobs. So the skill, it seems to me, is the way of crafting the story such that the sort of better angels of workers' natures want to get behind that rather than resist it and block it. And as we'll talk about, it's not only the story. You have to attend to the organisational system, the incentives, the budget processes, the skills. But if it's not coordinated by that story in a way that people can get behind, I don't think these initiatives in themselves fail. And in fact, people tend to block them. So I don't think they work, rather they fail and people often tend to resist them. That was a very long response, I realized to a simple question, but that's kind of laying out the, the territory here. Right. Okay, we're done, I think. <laughs> yeah, no? yeah I, I definitely related a lot to that, um, Jules, because, well, I'm, I'm married to a carpenter and I, I, I can admit that he has rolled his eyes when, you know, I talk about my work at times. But, you know, the, it's more, I think, that sense of disconnection. So innovation is something that is seen to happen over, over there. And you see this in organizations as well. It's, oh, it happens in another part of the business. It's not part of my day-to-day -day job. And I think that's where, you know, the, the narrative concept is great because it's actually a way, you know, stories are a way of bringing people together, you know, from, from the dawn of time. We sit around a campfire, we tell stories, and that's what brings us together and helps us to understand things in, in a universal way. So it's also interesting as well because 
in Australia and in particular where I live at the, in, at the moment in the Hunter Valley, there is this massive transition or diversification, depending on where you, what perspective you want to take, but around moving from the fossil fuel through to renewables energy and that comment around dislocation. So are people going to be, you know, there is a sense of fear in the sense of, okay, well, am I going to lose my job? I work in the mines and so on, or can we take the skills and knowledge and skills and, and apply it in a different way? So again, you know, at, at I guess a more at a macro level in, in that sense, it's how do we move the economies in a, in a way that's meaningful, but also moves us towards renewables. But then from an organizational level, I think organizations, some of the speakers I've had conversations with around this are, are really wondering how to help their people and their organizations to innovate in, in new ways. And, you know, they definitely have lots of initiatives and lots of tools, but the narrative is, you know, and that's why I'm really interested in understanding more around this. I think there's a bit of a, I guess, a, we've almost dismissed the power of stories and of narrative in what's the underlying foundation behind where this will, will could could take us as, as an economy, but also as organizations within the economy. Yeah, there's a point in there where I quote a, a mainstream economist and there's sort of a, you know, because narrative and story can sound a little, a little literary, a little, you know, soft and woolly, and does it really have an effect? It's a thing that, you know, people that study the humanities rather than engineering are interested in. I think it can be easy to dismiss as sort of a, or maybe just a bit of icing that you wrap things up in, but the real grunt, the real work is in what we fund and, you know, what hard skills, what new technology we bring into the organisation. But I think there's, at, at least in some quarters in academia, like this economist, there's a growing realization of how powerful narratives are in coordinating activity. So there was a quite a, a good paper uh, in top journal, <laughs> whether or not that matters, called Org Science by Carolyn Bartel and Raghu Garad, who really put this idea of innovation narratives on the map in, in terms of in terms of management theory. And they make this nice analogy that they operate like what's called boundary objects. Again, it's a bit of a sociology term, but it things like maps were boundary objects right so there were there were artifacts around which people could coordinate activity so it's, if you imagine historically there was we didn't have maps at a, at a certain point in history you had to sort of describe you know features of how to navigate or navigate by the stars at a certain point we developed the art of cartography and we built these artifacts and that helps people imagine space in a different way i mean you know it's hard not to fall down toward a military kind of example here, but it, it certainly allowed us to do certain things. Now, those things weren't good for everybody, right? But it's hard to imagine a lot of modern society without these artifacts that we could coordinate activity around. And their argument is innovation narratives when they're done well, and, and to be done well, they can't just be, you know, something that's said by a leader or a CEO and no one takes any notice of them to their argument or their definition of being done well is it's something that's held and understood like a, a national anthem or something that people know the words to you know <laughs> they don't have a lot of power if if no one knows the words or no one knows the melody right or a flag if no one recognizes it you know it's it's not powerful but if you if the majority of people are familiar with some of the features this this becomes this coordinating mechanism inside organizations that helps people go when they're thinking, why the hell are we doing this again? Oh yeah, because of X, Y, Z, right? And again, I just emphasize like it, 
there's often a tension between people's rational incentives, if you like, what they're rewarded for financially or in terms of career progression and the story about innovation. And so the goal is you have to bring these into alignment, right? It, it, if, if you're asking people to do one thing, oh yeah, take risks, innovate, um, spend time and extra effort coming up with new product ideas that might disrupt our current market. And yet they're not at all rewarded for that in terms, in terms of career progression, the reward's probably gonna win out. So, however, if you simply change incentive structures without any current story about what the goal is and how it's linked to strategy, the argument that these narrative folks would make is you're not going to be effective either. There has to be this sort of hand and glove dynamic of bringing these things together. And, and that's, you know, we talk about a case of Whirlpool, but the reason for, for mentioning this case study in, in the article is to try and give an example of how these things can be coordinated. It's, it's really interesting when we think about how these narratives play out in organizations. And as you were talking, Jules, I was thinking about an organization that we've worked with who I guess they're, they're known for being innovative, but they the innovation was very much, for want of a better word, the white collar workers. What they realized was that the corporate office didn't have the answers to the problems that those on the floor were dealing with. So they, they actually started to change their narrative to make innovation everybody's business. But they couldn't just use that narrative. They had to do some capability building, actually engage with the people on the floor, find out what the problems were. And the example that I'm thinking of is they, it, they invited us in to help build some capability in a, a team of maintenance engineers and they had a real issue with scheduling. So a lot of needed to be scheduled 24 hour shifts and it end up with double ups or too many people working at the same time or not enough at other times. The corporate office had been trying to solve this scheduling issue multiple times and had not succeeded. So the decision was, well, let's, let's make it everybody's business. Let's involve the maintenance engineers. Now, when this first happened, there was a lot of pushback. Why were you doing this? They won't listen to us anyway. You know, the, the sort of the old narrative was still at play. There was legacy thinking in there. You know, that's that's their job. They failed. Why should why should we have to do it? That sort of thing. Mm. But over time, the reward for them wasn't so much about reward of promotion or reward of pay. It was reward around their intrinsic growth. So yeah. they started to learn these new skills. They started to apply it. They started to see their own genius because they're right there dealing with this issue. So they really understand that problem. Yeah. And within six months, they'd created a solution, initially just a, a prototype. They started with a prototype with magnets on a whiteboard and then they went to Excel spreadsheet and then they went a level up and each time testing it. Within six months, they had the prototype. Within 12 months, they'd entirely solved the problem and saved the organization, well, over the course of many years, millions of dollars in, mm. in a short space of time. They'd saved, I think it was, one to two full-time employees in the organization. And the narrative for them 
that narrative of innovation is everybody's business started to spread across the organization. Mm. So for them, they didn't need, I'm sure they, they would have relished in some sort of monetary reward, but the change that we saw in the people mm. in the, involved in that project and the growth, there was one particular maintenance engineer who was very quiet, did not really offer a lot of engagement in the process initially. By the end, she was the one presenting and pitching to the leaders of the organization. So it, there were lots of elements to that, not just the narrative, but it started with the change of narrative. Well, that's a great story. And, you know, the, the point about intrinsic rewards that you mentioned goes back to the thing we talked about on the last session, which is meaning at work. And mm. it's certainly true that people, like there's a diverse set of motivations that drive people. I mean, money's part of it, but autonomy, skill, the satisfaction of solving a problem, sense of camaraderie and connection with people. So they're, they're all good things. I guess I was saying sometimes people are, what's more problematic is when they're actively incentivized not to do something, not to, yeah. which I think sometimes happens too, right? So it doesn't, it, I wouldn't argue that everything needs a financial bonus at the end of it to motivate people. But if you're, you know, if the, the, the rational financial or pecuniary maxima, maximization involves not trying to solve certain problems or just, you know, perpetuating the status quo, that is probably an issue. But it, it's, a, it's a great story that you tell. And the other thing it had in it, and Claire, you mentioned this previously too, I think, is I guess the traditional way to think about innovation in manufacturing firms comes right back out of sort of Henry Ford and, you know, General Electric and stuff was you have your engineers team, your your product development team, perhaps very isolated, like the lab and then everybody else, you know, if you worked in manufacturing, your your goal or your your the role that you played wasn't to make new suggestions or, you know, change anything and, and marketing as well. It was simply just to push out the product, right? So there was this real separation between the brains that would work on, you know, assume they understood the market and assume that the product or service that needed to be developed, that they knew. I think we've seen a change in that too. And, and again, that Whirlpool example, this is exactly what they were trying to move away from. So they said there was traditionally this very siloed relationship. Whirlpool, by the way, a, a sort of white goods, home appliance, multinational. And the, the story that they were challenging when the CEO came in was this notion of a commodification of white goods so that consumers would go in and they'd see a, you know, a dishwasher or a washing machine, whatever it is, and just go, well, what's really the difference here? And then, of course, it comes back to just a question of price and potentially a race to the bottom. And they had this nice metaphor that we want to avoid this ocean of white, right, of white goods, which is part of the, the issue around narratives, right? You tend to need a compelling metaphor. We often think in metaphors, really, they, they emotionally move us in a way that sort of logic and spreadsheets don't. And so the goal was to say, well, how do we convert the organization from this old siloed manufacturing model where different departments just focus on specializing, specialization and their particular machine-like part? How do we build a more organic organization that's producing innovation constantly? So of course, many organizations would love to do that. So it's not a, a novel aim.
but they they had this big coordinating story but then and they, the, the other thing they had was a very clear goal because i realized in fact the first time the first iteration of this article and you know claire you gave some helpful feedback around this was it wasn't so clear how or i realized upon reading it again one could have had the impression that you just created a story and that's quite separate from clear commercial goals I think if the story is just innovation is good, you know, we want to be an innovation machine, it doesn't actually provide the focus and direction about when you arrive, where you need to head and, and what arrival looks like. So they had this very clear goal that they wanted to generate a billion dollars in additional revenue from new, new offerings. Um, and therefore, every worker was asked, every employee was supposed to understand how their work contributed to that goal. So they did a bunch of other things we can talk about. But I, I think, you know, the big overarching story with the compelling metaphors, the compelling evocative language, that's part of the, the role of leadership, but also aligning it to very clear strategy that people can understand. And then there's the more, what, what do you call it, the more detailed work of filtering that down into, well, what does that actually mean for executive compensation? What does that mean for our product pipeline? What does that mean for how we deal with risk or how we approach talent, et cetera? Awesome. And I think that's one of the questions, I guess, I, I was hoping to talk to you about, and you've, you've touched on it there is, you know, often I think, well, I, I certainly see in situations where, you know, there's like culture, there's innovation and there's leadership. And to me, you know, they're like the, the golden circle almost in terms of, you know, how we're creating that longevity within an organization and actually having an impact in, in what we do as well. But often, you know, culture is owned by the head of HR, people in culture, whatever the scenario, depending on what their, their titles are, then innovation is owned by perhaps head of innovation or somebody within that role and then you've got leadership which is managed usually by you know there's often consultants maybe that help there or and or the exec leadership or, or there's somebody internally in strategy that's driving that too so there's three different I guess chiefs who then need to somehow come together to move the organization in a way that you know you've got that culture of um, trying new things of innovating together whatever the scenario is then you've got the actual innovation outcomes and having the guide rails around what is innovation in our organization how do we translate that into action and outcomes where are we actually trying to move towards as well which often tends to you know you see organizations tend to trip themselves up a little bit because there's a tendency to think a little bit short term there and then the leadership so there's the how you lead but then there's also the why you lead and I'm just wondering is narrative a way of perhaps you know wrapping its arm around by wrapping its arm around the culture the leadership and the innovation pillars if you will within an organization could narrative be a way to overcome that tendency to have three pillars operating together but not really together there's often discrepancies in terms of approaches and just little you know changes in language and things as well so yeah i'd just be really interested in your thoughts there it's it's something i often see great intentions but not necessarily able to translate that into something that's really indicative of the potential they truly have well i think so i mean i think that's the the scholars and the, the people that write about innovation narratives favorably 
that I've mentioned a few of them would say that is the ultimate goal of narratives. It, it, they operate as this coordinating mechanism. I mean, there's a distinction. It's not just any old narrative, and this goes to the work of Day and Shay that I, I mentioned later, but they're, what, what they suggest when trying to understand an organisational narrative is talking to the executive team first and asking them questions about you know, how confident they feel to, that the organization's on track to, to meet their targets, their growth targets, how the organization's fared in the past in terms of targets, and then listen to the way they talk about this. And also just ask them about innovation. How does it work here? And they say- so you're in the sense of get- the, the words you use, is that what you mean? So listening to the way- Listen to the words they use, but listen to the underlying sort of perhaps- not not necessarily explicit words only but the underlying belief that's conveyed okay. you know and they say like which again of course takes some interpretation you know like there's always the the mind reading fallacy but to the extent that we can try and listen to well they suggest classifying it in terms of three possibilities and the first is is it a discouraging or defensive underlying story about past failure well you know, we, we didn't meet our targets, but it wasn't really our fault because the system or the market or the budgeting process, or is there some reason that's pointed to outside of their domain? So is it effectively not taking responsibility and blaming? And they say, this is a bit of a red flag, <laughs> suffice to say. Then they say, they say like number two, they, they call optimistic or reasonable. So they'll say, look, we've missed it in the past, but we've made these changes and we're feeling confident to be, you know, that we're going to hit these targets. And they're saying these sort of stories will generally be more supportive of innovation and, and growth. And then they say you could, you hear a third kind of story often amongst real industry leaders or innovation top performers where they're describing a clear growth strategy. There's, they've absorbed lessons of past failures. They're expre- expressing enthusiasm not just about hitting the targets, but building new kinds of businesses as a sort of optimism. Now, they they also say this could be delusional, so don't just take it at face value, but that story as a first first level of engagement with an organisation is important because all the, following this logic, all of the initiatives in the world are unlikely to succeed if the fundamental story from the top is discouraging, defensive, it doesn't really work for us you know, our industry or our organization or our budgeting processes or our CFO, whatever it is. So their argument is, the second step they say is then go and test that story at different levels of the organization. So ask people about talent or, you know, ask people across different areas about how risk is approached, you know, for new ideas, how how's the voice of the customer brought into the, the organization or is it you know, the engineers sitting around imagining what customers want <laughs> rather than any ability to, to bring in those insights, et cetera. But the, I think this is useful. I, I don't know. I'm interested in, in where you've seen this, Aaron Shan, or where you've seen perhaps evidence of those more defensive or discouraging narratives. I, but, yeah. I, I was, I was going, as you were talking, I was thinking of an example of where I'm seeing this. And I, I wonder if it's not so much these conflicting narratives in this case, but it's a, a narrative and then a conflicting behavior. So I was talking to an executive recently who has been feeling a bit frustrated with other, other leaders in the organization generally in terms of their willingness to test and learn. There's, there's a sense that within the organization, they're needing to 
make things perfect before sure lots of people have checked things over and you know cross their t's and you know put their full stops in and all, all of that sort of thing and he was saying well i don't know where this is coming from because i i'm always encouraging test and learn let's experiment let's just try things and i never berate a mistake i've never called anyone out on their making mistakes but as we continued the conversation and went on talking about projects and things what became clear to me was that they really valued high quality. There was quite a perfectionist attitude. And this would show up as correcting colleagues' work without telling them or getting involved in work projects that they didn't need to get involved in at that minutia level, right into the weeds. And so with this, I saw a conflict between telling the narrative, saying the right thing, saying the thing that you, that you know you should be saying, but then the mismatch between the narrative and the behaviours, the things that they're actually doing. So it becomes a bit theatrical in that sense. It makes me think a, a bit of that notion of, well, it's leadership theatre or innovation theatre where we yep. know what we should be saying, yep. but our behaviours are, are not living up to that expectation. Completely. I, I think there's two levels of analysis there. So one is what you're talking about where there's a sort of, I mean, it's like being a parent, right? No matter what you tell your kids, you know, that they're probably going to absorb what they observe you doing <laughs> a lot more than what you say, right? So if you're saying don't eat bad food, you know, eat healthy and you're sitting on the couch with a packet of Dorito, Doritos. You know, like that's, there is nothing be... wrong with that. Yeah, just I'm, saying. Not, I'm not saying there is, there's, there's time for it, you know. Afternoon. <laughs> yeah, you know, what we do has more of an impact than what we say. And, and when those are out of alignment, even when it's, it's you know, it's not a negative thing, presumably the, the dynamic you're describing, it's an attention to detail, etc. But if, you, if you're worried about slowness of press and, you know, the, the problems of analysis, paralysis and perfectionism and things, I mean, that sort of modelling might exacerbate that. And then there's... So, so one is at the level, the individual level. The second is the organizational system level too. Mm. So budgeting processes, you know, it's like get things out there, but let's, let's rapidly prototype things. And yet if, how many organizations do you encounter where they say, we need to spend this money by the end of the financial year because our budgeting cycle, you know, is this 12 month thing. And then if we don't spend it, so we'll just spend it on anything, you know, <laughs> like just quickly. And sometimes consultants benefit from this because they rapidly want to book these workshops in. But so often the way we fund new initiatives inside corporates and, and larger bureaucratic organizations is completely out of step with the sort of dynamism that's needed, the rapidity, or, or it just, you've got to do 10 pages of paperwork to get, you know, a, a, a small amount of funds, seed funds to explore an idea. So there's also looking at leadership and looking at the integrity of behavior and words matching deeds but also the organizational system and processes and how well they align with what the message is coming from the top. And do, do you really want this? <laughs> do you really want to move quickly and embrace the idea that you'll need, you might need a hundred different ideas for 10 really good ones to get up. And that means 90 won't, you're going to have to say no to 90 and people might have their names, you know, attached to those. Do you have an ability to process that without loss of face and loss, loss of status? for the people connected to those ideas. So those sort of portfolio management processes that we know are important for innovation. Um, unless the consequences of managing that way are acknowledged, 
and it, it's not a career hit if your name is connected to an idea that doesn't get up, you're probably not going to get the sort of healthy progress through that portfolio, healthy progress through the gates of it that you're saying you want. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I might add to that, there's, there's definitely some things, I guess, almost triggering for me when, when you're both talking is there's definitely that uh, when you were talking about encouraging there, Sean, I was going, oh, yes, you know, I've seen that a lot as well, where the managers or middle management people are like, yes, we want our people to try ideas. We want people to get stuff off the ground. But then when you start to delve into why that's not happening absolutely relate to you know we need to fill out 20 pages of documentation for a 10k to try yeah. something there's that piece so people just go you know it's 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 not worth it, essentially but the other side is that people i remember one particular company i was working with and, and amazing people great people genuinely truly want to you know create more better outcomes for their customers but what was happening is you know there was almost a sense of resentment within the teams because it was like they want me to innovate and they want me to come up with new ideas but they want me to do that on top of my job day to day so the behaviors of i can't do that and in a sustainable way so then you end up having these spikes of activity where there's some really cool stuff happening but then it drops back to business as usual because year end is coming up or whatever the scenario is um so i think that clarity around what's expected as well but also you know the behaviors behind the intention is is probably really important and we're definitely having conversations now around okay well how do we translate I really want my people to think about new ways of doing things better into how do I support them to do that? So yeah. there's actually an, an outcome. And the other thing as well that I guess just when you're asking the question around examples was the measurements piece. I think there is definitely a tendency to still use traditional metrics around innovation in particular. And I've had an instance where again like sitting with the exec around the table all amazing people you know and they're just looking at me in bewilderment going okay I don't understand Claire why are we spending this much money in innovation and we're not getting the outcomes and then we started to look at the way it was set up and what was happening was that each I guess function had their own P&Ls but it turned out that you're disincentivized to kill a project off essentially within a project within yeah. a financial year so yeah. i was like this is why stuff isn't happening because we've got lots of zombie projects going around the organization so the behavior and the narrative are not matching up and then once they you know you can literally see the pennies dropping around the table but then they've started to actually align and go okay it's actually okay to kill off projects now let's not hold it on our on our pnl but what are we doing with that instead so and now we're actually like you said you know you're going to need 100 good ideas to get 10 or it's good, 100 ideas, good, bad, whatever they are, to get to 10 good ideas to then get to one or two truly great ideas. Yeah. great ideas. And it takes time. But yes, definitely, I think the measurement piece is something that um, it would be really good, you know, as I guess it, how it wraps into the narrative as well. So when you talked about Whirlpool saying, right, we want to, I think it was $1 billion or something they wanted to generate in addition yeah. to their current revenue lines that's that's a good measurement how you do that you know go nuts but you know yeah yes. and again that would be a whole different chat show wouldn't it around innovation <laughs> metrics yeah yes Punit. <laughs> my a friend of mine fred atm that published that book with strategizer on what was it called the invincible company all around portfolio mm. management he's got really interested in this idea i think i mean the, the simple way of the, the simple way they would frame it and a lot of folks that work in this space 
talk about the distinction is moving towards the venture capital mindset because that's where rather than the sort of bureaucratic manage project management mindset so the venture capital world has pretty good standards on how how many different ideas need to be funded in order to get like a unicorn idea i think it's something one to 300 or something around that ballpark right just based on 10 years of plus of data and yet i mean it's very difficult to model the skin in the game incentives of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs and and venture finance inside large organizations it's not impossible it's just difficult right and mm-hmm. someone summed it up of you know uh, little little rewards for winning inside an organization or fewer rewards for for getting it right fewer costs of getting it wrong so if you if you're an entrepreneur you own a company and you've got financial backing equity based finance you know you can get massive rewards if you get that thing right and you 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 incur massive losses if is if it if it doesn't so you you your incentives are very aligned with doing your best to make this idea work the incentives aren't necessarily the same on the vc side to make every idea win you know like the 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 sort of model is based on one of these ideas generating massive outsized rewards in an exit scenario uh now that might be true at the kind of board level or the the executive level in an organization but usually there's a set of kind of status uh, association games that play downstream right which was my my project my idea that i'm associated with i want to get that through and the other danger to watch out for is or the, the difficult thing is generating real feedback that helps work out whether an idea has legs or not right that the this idea that a testable idea is better than a good idea as one famous book put it and what you tend to get is the you know executive sitting around saying well i like this one or i like that one or i don't think that one's going to work right and this kind of opinion driven thing i i really like this technology so i'm going to throw money at this and so that there is a lot of good work to do and many organizations are doing this in building those gates of test and learning etc getting sort of feedback or setting setting experiments that will give some sense that hey it's worth continuing to fund the next stage of this idea or it's worth killing it but having those clear systems is incredibly important i think to move towards the the sort of innovation model that we're talking about i just want to take us back we mentioned just a little earlier around innovation taking time that we we need to have patience for it and if we connect that to narrative i'm wondering how how can organizations get that narrative right because saying saying it's going to take time it's we've got patience or whatever you put around that narrative there's always the the conflicting narrative of i don't have time to do this because i've got my day job and also when we think about leaders they might be talking about innovation takes time but then they're expecting their teams or need their teams to be doing to meet the deadlines and things. So I'm, I'm wondering, Jules, whether in the research or what your view there is on mm. how can we manage that narrative around time? Yeah, it's a good one. I don't, I don't have an easy answer beyond creativity in general and innovation as a sort of subset of that are resource intensive. They take time and energy. And it seems to me sometimes organizations want to have their cake and eat it like they they want this to happen but they don't want to 
commit resources to the process of it happening. And to your point, Claire, they don't want, they want people to do this in addition to the business as usual job, but not necessarily if I contrast it with the, you know, a few extraordinary people will do that. And people will do that if they, I mean, entrepreneurs and things are more likely to do that if they feel they're really gonna benefit from it. But I think the more sustainable organizational system is to say, is, is to allocate resources, acknowledge the resources that need to be allocated to this activity. And then also acknowledge how long it can take for a really good idea to come through. Now, the potential is, I mean, if you, if you cast the funnel wide, wide enough and put the right ingredients in there, you can generate an idea that might be as profitable as you know all of your current business. And the one I'm thinking in particular is Amazon Web Services. And this was one idea about many for Amazon, a large e-commerce website. At the time, it was a very different business, a very different business model to what they were doing. And you know, Bezos is the first one to say a whole ton of things we tried to do didn't work. Probably most famously the was it the Fire Phone when Amazon tried to put out a phone and it was a complete flop. Had a Steve Jobs moment where he stood up. Anyway. So they, they funded stuff. They committed a lot of money to things that didn't work. But with AWS, they created something. They funded something that could be, if it was a, if it were a standalone business, if it were sort of decoupled from Amazon, it would probably be in the top five or at least top ten, you know, most valuable businesses in the world. Now, of course, Amazon's, you know, digital company, uh, you know, vying for the most. <laughs> so they have the ability to scale and do things that not every company has. But there's many organizations that could produce something that eventually vies for their current, you know, their business as usual dynamic. But it does take time, you know, patience, resources to be able to produce something like that. You don't just pull the rabbit out of the hat overnight when people are you know working after hours generally so i mean it's a it's a fairly general response to your question but i think that needs to be kept in mind mm. it's making me think of the correlation between how we talk about innovation and our desire for innovation in our organizations and how we talk about change in our organizations so we, we sort of 101 in terms of change is you know communication and making mm. sure that you communicate with a strong narrative a strong message and that it's repeated and reiterated often and and with with care as well so i'm not exactly sure where i'm going with that but that was what that was what you know spoke to me when you were when you were yeah. talking I thought where you were going to go was the narratives around optimization and efficiency and innovation, because these I see often in conflict, you know, if we, if we sort of tune a system up and it, it's a worthy goal, you know, you want to make a, an organizational system as sleek and efficient as possible. But I guess there is a story where the goal is to maximize costs, maximize profit, and then, you know, distribute that profit to shareholders or, you know, in executive compensation, take that saved fat. And rather than optimize the system, but take that, those extra resources and invest it in these innovation producing processes, which are very different. You know, these exploratory processes are, you know, messy and uncertain and need different kind of metrics, but also a, a different kind of story. They, they need a different kind of management process. And this is where I see that conflict that you're alluding to, Claire, as well, when it's workers are being asked to do 
it, what, what feels like run in different directions, you know, be very, very efficient and focused on how you deliver business as usual, but also be creative and exploratory. It is possible for an organization to do both of those things. This is classically called Explore and Exploit by Jim March, 1991 was the paper that he put that out. And there are companies that do this pretty well, like Apple and, but, you know, the, the, the exploration definitely takes resources and patience and time. And if that's not recognized, if it's just a sort of hope that it will happen, you know, on <laughs> the sweat and tears of workers also being asked to, you know, do more with less every, every quarter or every year, you're probably not going to get that. You're probably not going to get that creative and innovative outcome. And I wonder is, you know, like back to your point, Sean, about the communications element and how it's so important. We're really clear and careful with what we say and, and then combining that with, you know, moving almost from that disorder to order scenario where, you know, we've got the exploration, figuring stuff out. And then we're, you know, there's going to be that intersection where some things will you know transition over into actually a scalable idea. Is there, I guess, a narrative, like, is there different narratives for different phases or do we need to, I'm just wondering, is there one narrative and that's the narrative full stop or is there a narrative that is then almost translated or connected to either different phases of the innovation work or to maybe different functions, you know, within the organization? I'm just wondering, is it, you know, had, is there a way of slicing and dicing that or is it just one narrative? That's a good point. I mean, so different parts of an organization are working on different things and have their own, you know, sub-strategic goal. I mean, ideally those goals, you know, in an ideal system stack up and aren't pulling it in different directions. We know in reality, it's often messier and, you know, there's sort of Game of Thrones dynamics going on. But I, I do think it, so, so in ideally a goal that when you're trying to cohere people around joint contribution towards a goal, that needs, I, I would argue that needs its own story. It's a distinct story, right? So if you're actual, the goal of this unit is to make these processes more efficient, to cut waste, et cetera, that's fine. The story's around that. It's not, you might, you might develop, you might take creativity towards that process, but you're not, the goal clearly isn't coming up with new product ideas or thinking about how new emerging technology might meet latent consumer demand or something. Your, your goal is to tune up this system <laughs> to produce the same output for, for less input, you know, or, or more efficiently process. That's fine. But I think the, I, I think these, these guys, when I say these guys, I mean, the scholars engaged in this, this sort of research around innovation narratives would say, it is helpful if your goal is to get the, the larger organizational system to align behind innovation activity it's important to have an overarching story about where innovation fits in with the organizational strategy. I mean, you'd say, I don't know what your experience has been walking around an organization and asking people randomly about the strategy and, you know, how their job aligns with it or not. I mean, some, some places you probably get a, a gratifying response to that. It's like, oh yeah, this is our, you know, three year strategy or six months. This is what we're working on. But Perhaps in many organizations, that's just not something people are thinking about day to day or, or aware of, right? Yeah. So I think the same sort of tension you'd see with an innovation narrative, in a, in, perhaps in a great, in an ideal scenario, it filters down such that people can align their activity and their sort of KPIs with this story. And yet 
of course, in many places that that's not going to happen. People are just focused on what they need to do this week. Mm. Jules, I think a, a great way for organisations to share that narrative around innovation is through their values. And a lot of the work we do, we, we help teams develop their values, but we move them away from the old school passive values. So if you were to look at a, a lot of government organisations, for example, they, they'll have values like innovation, integrity, you know, we care or something like that. And then, and then what, what does that mean? And when I was working on a project where the, exactly that, the organisation brought us in to look, look at their purpose and vision and values. And we went around and asked people, what does innovation mean? Because it was one of their values. And it came out that for some, it meant, it meant technology. For others, it meant ideas. For others, it was just an eye roll and it, was, it doesn't mean anything to me. And so where we, we shift organisations to is this notion of active values. So it's as an example for innovation, an organisation may have an active value that is think big, act small. Mm. So that there's, a, there's, a, there's an understanding of what, what, I, need to, what mm. I need to do and, and how that relates to me. But we take it a step further and we'd, we'd ask people in the organisation to start to share stories around where have they seen this value lived and breathed. And the example that I'm looking at, we actually ran sessions with every single employee in the organization and it was during the pandemic. So they were all online and they, they went out into breakout rooms and shared these incredible stories of these active values being lived. And then we started to hear specifically around the innovation one, we, we heard lots around different values that they had, but around the innovation, we started to hear all these incredible things that were happening that weren't necessarily the the big bang innovations that that we expect we think innovation is but these these small things that people were doing that were changing the game for for their customers mm. and what that organization is now doing is actually regularly taking these stories so requesting these stories around the values in order to spread that single value that single narrative of of think big, act small across across the organization. And I think more organizations just even just start there in terms of their narrative and have that focus on storytelling throughout. And it doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't, um, but it does have to be real. Then, then maybe they'll start to shift that old mindset around, around innovation and, and, and what it means for their organization as well. Well, that's a good point. And it, it makes me realize I was, because I was thinking in particular about this Whirlpool example in the notion of new products. I mean, innovation is a couple of things. So it, 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 look, it can look quite different if you're in a service organization, if you're in government, if you're a bureaucratic organization, it still exists, but your goal isn't necessarily to produce new products or new product ideas. There's also, there's innovation in all different parts of the organization, internal processes, et cetera. And then there's the sort of basic problem solving. You, you're bringing creativity and energy to basic or sometimes incremental problems. They're not gonna radically transform the organization, but they do 
make it more effective. And we've all had that service, customer service experience where somebody seems so unable to solve a basic problem, so disinterested <laughs> or uninterested in even inquiring or trying to understand what you're, you're, you're asking them when it doesn't fit a particular expected box, right? So I think there's a lot of value in that, in, in bringing those values to life. And I agree, the old model of what are they? Again, they're on the wall somewhere. They're, they're, they were developed a few years ago and they're these generic words that are, 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 are such, what's the word that I was talking to my students the other day, the names escaped me. But when you say something so generic, I was, I was talking to my students about their reflective essays and saying, you know, I'll give you an example of what's not an insight. Like I realized through doing this that I need to be more organized. Do you guys know what I mean? When you say something that if this wasn't a podcast, I'd, I'd look it up, you know. Um, <laughs> I was going to come to you. We'll, 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 we'll as soon as we hang up. Attitude is the word. Attitude. Attitude. Right. All right. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. Often those sort of things just look like a set, a, a set of generic kind of platitudes, right? Mm. And people... Those can be even counterproductive, not just neutral, because people just go, oh, my God. this." <laughs> so that sounds, uh, what you're describing sounds good. And actually, that was something, uh, that, that concept of storytelling, yeah, I think that's something I think that is probably a really good starting point for, I'd imagine, for leaders who are trying to figure out what our narrative could look like. Are there narrative? Yeah, I'm just thinking of a, an organization where the, the concept that we used was just show me. And the whole idea behind this was, I need, you know, no matter what, whether I'm in the manufacturing side of the business or I'm in maintenance or I'm in, you know, customer service, wherever I am the story that you share with me will connect on some level. So like when I'm in the functions, but also from a board level and from an executive level, um, people could start to understand where the pockets of power were, I guess, in terms of these guys are doing this really well. Can we take the, the narrative around what they're doing and translate that into other parts of the business? So we just literally use the words, show me. So every time somebody just made a statement, it was like, okay, show me, what are you talking about? Give me an example of that. And it translated, you know, back into something that was really meaningful, but people suddenly started to own it within the organization, which was really cool. But yeah, I think that that might be, and I'd love your thoughts on this, guys, is, you know, maybe that's a good place to start if you are looking to, yeah, what does a good narrative look like or what could it look like? Where would I start within my organization and not just go from that platitudes perspective of, right, we need to create a list and, you know, hopefully somebody will latch onto it and it'll sink in. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. But yeah, I just, I, I do, just was reflecting there that the show me element was really powerful in this instance. So, yeah. No, I, I like it. I mean, it's, it reminds me of this notion of appreciative inquiry as well, where you, rather than, starting with what's not working and so saying here's where we need to get to like building a story from okay so what you know what are we doing well like where, where are these pockets of of greatness hidden away and I agree that in a lot of organizations they are there when I've done work like that before when we've I remember doing a, a video project in a large aged and healthcare provider and we were making these sort of mini five-minute documentaries I can't remember what we called them but about um, I think it was about innovation, actually. And we discovered all this stuff that the organization, the, the executive had no idea about because people were doing these things that were solving problems sometimes around the system, you know, but they were actually, they were better expressions of innovation in many ways than the formal ideas that were coming through. And um, I often feel like that 
teaching in, in a university, like the things that seem most useful to me, my perception of what's most useful to students is usually the things I do around what I'm asked to do for my job. So what I mean by that is staying after class and talking to somebody about their business idea or providing an introduction to, from a student. So for a student to an investor or something like this. Now, they can't mandate that I do that because it's just, it wouldn't work. Like, mm. you, can't, you know, I will write an email for every student to a VC. You know, I, I wouldn't, they'd stop reading my emails if I did that. So to, in a sense, it has to be sort of bespoke based on what somebody needs. And it, it's just always struck me as an irony that, that it's, it seems the most impactful things I'm actually doing are the thing that sits out of outside of what my metrics and my, you know, perform, my, my performance is actually managed by. And so I suspect there's a, a version of that that happens with a lot of organizations. Certainly if I go back to the customer service example, you know, we've experienced the nightmare sort of your request doesn't fit inside my box. So I'm just not going to deal with it, but I'm sure we've all experienced the opposite too, where somebody goes, Oh, let me help you. I'm go I'll get back to you, you know, and they think about it or just work out irrespective of what the computer's telling them in front of them, how to solve this thing. And it has a huge impact. Right. But sometimes I worry that, the metricization, you know, the, the organizational system that only looks at these metrics won't see the, the incredible difference in effect between these two service experiences, you know, anyway. Which is where the, the stories shape that without it having to be any measurement. It's just an experience that you're yeah. sharing. And then yeah. it's like, oh, I felt amazing, you know, after this experience. Yeah, we've all had those negative experiences too. There is, I, want to, I want to say a quick thing in response to something you said before, Sean, about the challenge of performativity. So even, even with this narrative work, you know, I, George Shea and, and Gregory Day, who I mentioned, recommend talking to the executive and listening to the, the sort of underlying narrative. Now, you know, once that becomes a, once the word gets out that that's what people are doing, a rational executive team will start to perform this sort of ambitious, bold, constructive narrative, even if it's not what they actually believe, right? So there's always this challenge around the sort of cat and mouse game of when you make something a target, it, what, what did Deming or someone said something like this, that once you, once something becomes a target, becomes a measure, it ceases to be a good target type thing. I've forgotten the, mm. making a hash of the words, but the challenge is maintaining authenticity with these sort of things, these searching for stories. So it doesn't descend into, okay, every employee needs to give five stories this, this quarter about what they've done. Mm. And there's no, there's no, I don't think there's a mechanistic answer to that. It has to be, it, it's something about the animation, the human animation of, of these things from leadership, from management, from people actually seeing that you know, this really happened or this isn't just a cynical performance <laughs> because this is good. This is part of the performance review. I was starting to think about what we've said about narratives and, and like, we've obviously agreed they need to be growth affirming. Like there's, there's no doubt about that. But in addition to that, some of the things that we've touched on is that they, they need to happen regularly. Perhaps not, as you say, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, have mechanisms put around it. It needs to be more organic but repetition in communication is really important. There's an element where it needs to be bespoke and personalized so that you know different people can resonate with those. In addition, we need the, the behavior to match the story. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's just theater if we're just saying it and not actually 
showing that behavior in ourselves, especially from a leadership perspective. And, and with that, of course, we need authenticity. Is there anything else, Claire and Jules, that you'd say that we, that I've missed in terms of the, the importance or the way that we need to share narratives around innovation in organizations? Well, only, only the chicken and egg puzzle that the narrative is important. I would argue that the narrative is fundamental. If you don't have that as that coordinating mechanism to help people make sense of what innovation means to the organization, why they're doing things, it's very hard to get performance, but you can't only have the story. You mentioned behavior. You also need the organizational systems. So the talent processes around acquisition, retention, promotion, the, the risk management systems, you know, the, the way of bringing in customer voice and also the metrics and incentives, they need to also align to support what the narrative is asking people to do. If they're fundamentally, you know, orthogonal or they, they don't support the story, you're not going to get the sustained performance. So that's, that's the, the primary message of, of this piece that yes, how we talk changes the way we work, how we talk about the work's important, but also the system needs to support the talk. Yeah. And Claire, there's a, there's a quote that you gave me, which I now use all the time. And I think it's from the author of Atomic Habits, whose oh, yeah. name is James Clear. James Clear. James Clear yeah. um, such a good book. And it's, yes. and it's people don't rise to the level of their goals. They fall to the level of their system. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's right, Claire, but you, you shared it with me, but something along those lines, which sort of is exactly what you were just talking about, Jules. Yeah. No, and, and if I could add just one more thing, and maybe it's come out and I've missed it. Try, I was trying to listen, Shan, but the the longevity, I think, as well. It's like, okay, this isn't a, you know, as, as well as the frequency of, of the narrative and how we, we communicate that and listen and gather stories and share those stories and, and learnings, but also then the, the longevity in the sense that, you know, when times are good, great, but when times are not so good, that there's not that default back to a, a place of, you know, no, let's just wrap ourselves around an, an efficiency metric kind of thing, that people are there for the long haul. And it's it's that, that's, you know, we're, we're creating, it's a new legacy we're building in, in a way. I know that sounds a bit of paradox, but I do think that the longevity of the narrative needs to be appreciated up front. Because otherwise, I think the behavior, that's sometimes the reason the behaviors and the intention or the, the language, should I say, of, you know, clash is because you go, oh, I really want to do this, but it's the end of the financial year. So I'm going to, you know, revert back to a certain style of, of my leadership or action. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's a fascinating topic, isn't it? It certainly is. And I completely agree with you. Claire, that we can't shift from that abundant mindset into a scarcity mindset. Mm. We need to be telling that abundant or infinite, as Simon Sinek says, the infinite game. It's about the longevity, thinking about the future rather than just the moment in time. Mm. Yep. Love it. I feel like we've probably come to a natural conclusion. Jill. That was the natural end. That yes. pause was a natural <laughs> conclusion. And I hesitated to say anything. Well, maybe we'll just we'll use use this as a opportunity to thank you for joining us. And Claire, thanks for doing your first podcast on the Igniting Change and Transforming Cultures podcast. So I'm sure you'll be back to host to again in the in the future. And Jules, you'll definitely be back 
probably next time talking about psychological safety and accountability. Mm. Yes. Ooh, that's a nice meaty and, one. Nice and juicy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks. Great talking to you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye for now. Well, there goes another deep chat with Jules for you. If you'd like to read the article, head over to the New 21 website, new21.com slash blogs, and you'll find Jules's article as well as lots of other blogs written by the team and even myself. The topics that we cover are innovation, agility, culture, and leadership. So why not head over there and have a read? If you do have any questions or comments about today's podcast or articles that we've written, please get in touch. And if you did enjoy the podcast, go on, hit that subscribe button or even send us a review. Thanks very much. See you later.